Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and happy holidays. I am very excited to have Paul Fisher with me today. He is an author and film producer based in the United Kingdom. His first book, a Kim Jong-il production, was nominated for the Crime Writers Association's Nonfiction Book Award. He has written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and The Independent. And the book he is here to talk about today is called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, A True Tale of Obsession, Murder, and the Movies. Thanks so much for for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So where did the idea for this book come from? It came from, um, well, I've always had an interest in... um, kind of early cinema, the birth of pictures. I grew up in France, and it's sort of a celebrated time period there because of the Lumiere brothers, obviously. But I've always been really compelled by that time period, by the idea that that 20, 30 years around the first movies felt like the time that the 19th, 19th century was kind of becoming the 20th century. You know, to kind of to, to, to simplify this world of like, Horse-drawn carts and and quill-written letters and all of that was turning into a world of electricity and steam and all this stuff. And that the movies were kind of the medium to represent that. And that, you know, in France, at least, we would celebrate the Lumiere brothers as geniuses. But there were all these other people who had come close or had had patents but couldn't renew them or who were successful for a while and then weren't and their lives ended in kind of tragic ways. They made it feel like a really rich period. And so I had an interest in that kind of area. And then one day I was reading a book that mentioned Louis Le Prince, you know, as the guy who'd made the first film, but he disappeared and, and so on. And I remember thinking, I've never heard of this guy, but I've read everything there is to read about this, I thought. And he's never come up. So I figured he, Le Prince at, 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 at the start was one of those people who... You know, maybe his family or supporters claimed 
he had built the camera and made a film. But then if you scratched the surface, you'd find that, you know, either he hadn't made a film or the camera couldn't actually work or he had made a little bit of a snippet of film, but it was actually in 19, 10, 15 years after the fact and people are just getting their dates wrong. So I looked him up and I was really surprised to find that, oh no, okay, this guy called Lula Prince did exist. And he did make motion pictures, fragments of which still existed and I could watch them. And they were dated years before the Lumiere brothers. And and we knew for a fact that they were dated first because someone in them had died at a certain point, meaning the films had had to have been made before that. And he had been granted patents and the patents were available to read and his camera still existed and his projector still existed. And they were both in a museum and people had looked at the insides of them and said they worked fine. And he had also disappeared in one of the great Victorian mysteries that had remained unsolved. And so I was kind of immediately obsessed by that kind of dual approach to it. Like it was in this world that I was fascinated by already. It was really rich. And then it had these two mysteries kind of, which were what happened to him? How did he disappear? Can this mystery be solved? But also how have, ne- have I never heard of this guy, even though every bar of evidence you would consider necessary to declare him the inventor of motion pictures he seemingly had cleared before anybody else. Right. And then to add to the intrigue, you've got the controversial inventor and self-promoter, Thomas Elva Edison in the mix in this story. And it's, it's such an interesting time, the late 19th century for inventors. So much innovation, in so much competition. There, there are races going on by people around the world to both develop and patent these wonderful new inventions. Yeah, and I'd never thought of film as one of those races, right? Because in France, you kind of learn that Louis Lumiere, you know, one night just had this vision almost and invented the cinematograph overnight. And then, you know, the American side of that, the argument that Edison was the first to invent movies was, you know, he met Edward Mybridge, who had made little uh, zoopraxiscope zoetrope images, and that inspired Edison to come up with something better. And so being Edison, within a few months, he had something better. So it was really interesting to kind of dig into that and realize there had been a race to invent motion pictures, a really interesting race, because it was stretched over almost 15, 20 years and many of the players were only dimly aware that other people were racing them or in what fashion or how fa- far along they were. And all the people who are trying to invent this medium were trying to invent it for different reasons. Like Le Prince was one of the people, possibly the first person who had a real vision for what this medium could be culturally and socially and creatively. And then there were people like Edison who were really trying to come up with a gimmick and a product and wanted to make money. And then there were people like Julietienne Marais and like Edward Mybridge who were trying to break down images into movement for kind of scientifical, physiological reasons. And they weren't that interested in moving images, but they were exploring the same technology just to get enough pictures of movement that they could freeze and, and study. And so I had this huge scope kind of that in writing the book, I could talk about Le Prince and I could talk about this kind of underdog trying to invent something before anybody else thing, tainted by the kind of foreshadowing that you know he's going to fail, you know he's going to disappear, you know his family are going to think Thomas Edison stole the idea from him, 
because the second he disappears, Thomas Edison suddenly comes out with this this invention that is a lot like his. But I could also touch on all this stuff. I could touch on this changing world through the way people used photography and images for medicine and for business and for the way they conceived of intellectual property and um, entertainment. And so all this different stuff that's really interesting as to A, how we think of the history and of the 20th century and of our popular culture and B, also kind of how we think of, of just like who comes first really of invention and, and, you know, how our modern idea of the genius inventor was invented in that time period. And again, you know, at the same time, another thing that has a flip side of a coin in a sense that, you know, Thomas Edison working at the time kind of becomes the prototype for our modern kind of Elon Muskie, Tony Starkey idea of the genius loan entrepreneur slash billionaire slash genius inventor. Because this is a true crime story, because it is about a guy disappearing, it's also happening at a time when like Sherlock Holmes and stuff are finally appearing in, in books and serials and people are grappling with also what it means to investigate stuff um, and to do detective work in a world that's becoming so big and so kind of difficult to grasp in a concrete way. So it was great. It was so rich. The more I dug, the more there were kind of different facets or elements of it that I didn't really have to have the digressions to address because it just plugged into the story that you could kind of flit from all these different parts of, of this fascinating period without ever leaving Le Prince for too long. Right, right, yeah. So let's talk a, a little bit about Louis Le Prince. Where was he born? What kind of childhood did he have? And when did he first start showing an interest in photography? He was, you know, French, um, middle class from a military family. And he was born in um, the 1840s in Metz, which is a kind of fortress city on the border between France and Germany, what was then Prussia. And a kind of fairly well-to-do family, and they moved around a lot. And he was kind of an artistic child, enjoyed painting, enjoyed, you know, writing, reading, the arts. But at a very young age, his family also became friendly with Louis Daguerre, who was one of the inventors of photography. And one of Le Prince's father's postings took them to Vincennes, which was very near where Daguerre was retired at the time. And the family lore has it that when Louis and his brother met Louis Daguerre and had their picture taken and were able to see him work, that had quite a strong impact on Louis and he became interested in photography then. So we're talking, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. And his father died and he was sent off to boarding school and we can kind of pick him up as a young adult where Le Prince was really interesting in the sense that like many middle-class men of the time, he was kind of caught between this kind of life of, of not necessarily leisure, but something a bit more distinguished and just work and also professional expectation. And so he, as a young man, was still interested in painting, had apprenticed to a painter, was still interested in photography, was taking photographs on his spare time. But he'd also studied optics, you know, the science of how the eye works and light works and how we see things, um, and chemistry at university and technical draftsmanship. And so he had this kind of disparate set of interests 
that didn't coalesce until he met in Paris a young English art student called Elizabeth Whitley, um, who he fell in love with, married, went back to England with, and he started working for her father's firm. There were iron forge mongers in Yorkshire, and Le Prince became you know, kind of a salesman slash uh, technical draftsman for them. And it's while he was in England that he kind of had his idea, his vision, his spark, as the family called it, for motion pictures. But because he didn't know what he was going to do up until that point, he kind of had this fascinating background that was weirdly useless for anything other than inventing the movies. Like if you study chemistry, then you can develop film. And if you study optics, then you know how the camera might capture movement and stuff and light might work within it. And if you're interested in photography, you're already familiar with cameras. And if you're interested in painting, you're familiar with kind of thinking um, artistically and how to frame things and, and, and how to capture things. And so all his interests kind of progressively coalesced into this one obsessive pursuit, which came to him kind of by chance eventually in the 1880s. Yeah. What was his inspiration? When did he realize that he wanted to create moving motion pictures? Yeah, we have his wife's account, his wife and kids' accounts, which is really fascinating. It's a case of kind of synchronicity where, you know, by the mid-1880s, Louis and his wife had several kids and they were living in Yorkshire and there were several things kind of on Le Prince's mind. So one was he was surrounded by kind of entrepreneurs and industrialists who had come from not very much, but had made their fortunes inventing something new. So like his father-in-law, Joseph Whitley, had kind of gone from living in a tenement to living in a big house in the suburbs through hard work and through all this stuff, but also because he would you know, invent something like a boiler valve for a locomotive that was successful and cheap enough that everybody started using it. And that made his fortune. So working in this environment, Le Prince had this one part of his brain thinking, oh, if I invent something new, a new process for something, it's not just cool and something to be proud of, but it's something you can actually make money and a reputation from. And so he had been looking for ways to invent something new in the fields he knew, which were mostly kind of decorative or artistic or photographic. And so he'd already tried or explored patenting different ways of taking photographs and putting them together and compositing them and then firing them onto plates to make kind of decorative. You know, I guess if you imagine Queen Elizabeth II coronation tea set type stuff, he was exploring early ways of doing that. And so he's got all this stuff going on in his brain on the one side. And then on the other side, at this time, his kids are really into their magic lantern, which was a gift again from Joseph Whitley for Christmas. And they were super popular at the time. And a magic lantern was really just like a slideshow. So you'd have this little desktop machine. You'd turn off the gas lights in the evening, draw the curtains. And with a little light shining through these slides, they would tell a story um, on your wall. And there were very basic animations where you could you know, kind of shake gauze in front of the slide and make it look like it was snowing or very simple fades or that kind of stuff. And people loved their magic lanterns and Le Prince's kids like really, really liked kind of coming home from school in the evening and popping that thing up and, and basically having a little like, you know, Victorian slideshow movie night thing. 
And so one day, according to the prince's wife and kids, he was in the shed in the back of the house in his studio working on compositing photographs together. So like, you know, that kind of thing of taking one image of, let's say, the queen and an image of her husband and blending those two photographs together to make it look like the people were together in the first place, which was also very popular at the time. And while he was handling kind of glass plates that had images on them, two of them of kind of similar exposures slipped in his hands and he nearly dropped them. And as he kind of lunged forwards to catch them, the kind of shaking of the and superimposing of the two frames made it look like the people in the images were moving. And, you know, as the prince's widow called it, that there was a spark, quote unquote, immediately where all this stuff kind of came together for Le Prince, where he was like, oh, if you could actually take pictures quickly enough and play one after the other, then you could recreate what just happened accidentally, but over and over and over again to make it look like movement. And, you know, this is where his knowledge of optics and chemistry and photography and everything came into play. And if I were to invent that, then that would be more successful than a magic lantern or a zoetrope or any of these little toys. And I could patent that, and that would be hugely successful and important. And look at how much my kids are loving their magic lanterns. So imagine how much people would love this. And so that very evening, you know, he was in the house after the kids were put in bed, talking to his wife about like this thing happened in the shed. And it's all kind of formed in my mind that if I can recreate it in an actual systematic way, then I could invent something that is artistic and technological and popular and no one's done before. And it's going to be the thing of the future. And as far as I can tell, no one's figured it out, but I've figured it out almost by accident. And it turned out he was kind of um, overly optimistic and, and what he thought would be pretty quick to do and set up. I just have to recreate these two frames moving. It turns out took many, many, many years to get to an even, you know, kind of rudimentary workable kind of state. Because one of the things about Le Prince is he wasn't actually an inventor, really. He wasn't Edison. He wasn't trained as an engineer. He was kind of one of the last of a generation of Victorian inventors who were tinkerers and fly by the seats of your pantsers and, and, you know, had an idea and then figured it out on the fly. But he was obsessive about it from that first moment, according to the record. Hmm. So over the years, there were different iterations of his invention uh, fine-tuned, and he required people to actually build the devices as well, right? Yeah, he hired, you know, he kind of started on his own and then hired some people in Leeds. And, you know, like the main challenge at the time was kind of twofold. It was kind of people mostly took pictures on glass, like on big glass sheets, because there was no paper or chemical film or celluloid yet that was sensitive enough yeah. to kind of read the light. And so if you wanted to do what Le Prince wanted to do, which was to take 10, 12, 15 or more pictures every second, then you needed 10, 12, 15 sheets of glass running through a machine every second, which you know essentially at worst was a ton of shattered glass and at best was you know a cabinet full of glass rattling back and forth really really loud really really huge really really heavy there wasn't really workable to film anything 
and and required a ton of light to to illuminate the images and you know you had to move the glass through the camera quickly enough that you could get 12 or 14 or 15 past the lens in a second so he experimented with okay well do i need these big metal belts to steady the glass can those move fast enough do i need to hand crank it do i need to find a way to have a generator or engine running it can any electrical or steam powered thing even do that you know, okay, so they all have to run past the lens. Can I get away with not having a lens but having several lenses so I can have these images run past, kind of intermittently past two lenses, three lenses, eight lenses, 16 lenses? Oh, no, I can't actually do that because then the slightly different point of view between the lenses, even though they're on the same camera, um, will make the image skip and pop. And and so he had all these difficulties to to try and work out to get this thing that he thought would be simple Uh, to make sense. Back after these brief messages. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Through Line podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Through Line over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR 
wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And back to the interview. So over the years, as he improves his invention, he, he of course makes films, which, as you've said, some still exist today. Can you describe his films? Yeah, of course. Um, there are three that we have for sure. And, and they're in fragments, but the stuff that we have it at the Science Museum in Bradford in England still has includes for at least a couple of the films, includes contact sheets with frame numbers that suggest that these films were originally much longer. But what we have through the, you know, I don't know, ravages of time or bad luck or whatever are two or three seconds of each in fragments. And and the film that's usually considered the first motion picture ever taken, people call it the Round Hay Garden scene. And it's you can find it on YouTube, you can find restored versions of it, colorized versions of it, the original. It's really kind of like a little, almost like a little vine or like a little video you would have on your phone of just Le Prince's father-in-law and mother-in-law and a family friend and his son walking around the family garden, kind of doing sort of silly walks. And and it may not have been the first one taken. There's another little uh, uh, fragment of Le Prince's son playing a melodeon that was taken on the same day and that at least one of the eyewitnesses remembers being taken before the Round Hay Garden scene. But we consider the Round Hay Garden scene to be the first motion picture ever taken because... Louis' mother-in-law, the prince's mother-in-law, who is recognizable in the film, she died a couple of weeks later. So it's categorically possible to say this was taken in October of 1888 because it couldn't have been taken any later because one of the people in it would have been dead. Um, and you know, just for kind of context um, for people, if if that film was taken in October of 1888, which it was, then it was taken seven years before the Lumiere brothers ever showed or took a, a, a movie and three years before Thomas Edison came out with his movies. And so it wasn't just, you know, kind of nipping these other famous rivals to the finish line. It was beating them by a mile. And in fact, one of the things I get into in the book is that even though it's easy to think of Le Prince and Thomas Edison as rivals, Le Prince was pretty much done by the time Edison just got started trying to invent the movies. And so we have those two uh, short films surviving, the Ranhe Garden scene and Adolphe Le Prince, who is Louis' son, playing the melodeon. And then there was another film that Le Prince took a couple of weeks later um, called Leeds Bridge, because it's a view of Leeds Bridge in the center of Leeds in Yorkshire. And again, it's really short, but like this one in particular, you know, the quality is kind of amazing. If you watch it, on a loop, there's kind of endless things you can notice. You can notice, you know, a man walking across the bridge with his pipe and another man walking across the bridge talking to a child and and steam coming from horses' nostrils as they pull carts. Like it's it's taken from a high view from like the second or third story of a tower at one end of the bridge. 
And, you know, it's not the quality of the cinematograph that would come out seven years later, but it's pretty close and it's pretty equal or better uh, quality images than Edison's early films. And, you know, taken together, these films suggest that Le Prince was, you know, had a camera that he could take out of his studio because he was able to bring it to his in-law's house and he was able to bring it up the stairs to take this view of Leeds Bridge from a great height, which was a great challenge. And he was able to kind of take the film and develop the film. And he was thinking about different ways to showcase what this could do. So, you know, this gets kind of technical, but it's almost certain, for instance, that one of the reasons he took Ron Haygarden's scene of his family walking around in a circle was so he could show people moving in depth because people had done, you know, zoetropes and, and stuff like that. They would kind of look like moving images, but they weren't real moving images because they had to be taken on a flat kind of plane and taken with multiple cameras. And, you know, he obviously took the the short film of his son playing the melodeon so he could then show how lifelike this technology would be if synchronized to live music, for instance. The shot of Leeds Bridge is, you know, kind of demonstrates the same way magic lanterns do travelogues via slides. Imagine if you did travelogues, you know, in this way and the, the, the different angles you can get when you're not restricted to that flat plane. And by this point, Le Prince had patents granted in several countries. He had a plan for developing this commercially. And so you can see in these films that not only he took them years before anybody else that we know of, but they were reasonably successful and reasonably varied. And he was already thinking about how to demonstrate commercially that this was a huge step forwards from other kind of animations of the time. Right, right. And the challenge for someone like Le Prince during this era of intense competition and secrecy was to weigh the importance of publicly promoting his invention with the importance of, of protecting it through patents and keeping it quiet. And at some point he moved to the United States and his family followed where he made contacts and slowly moved towards that, that end goal of getting this device made. What was that experience like for him living in the US? Yeah, there was a great draw for Europeans to the United States at the time. I think there was a real feeling of America's the future, Europe is kind of the past already. There had been kind of uh, uh, you know world expositions, exhibitions where Americans would rock up with all this different stuff. They made it seem like a real land of opportunity and, and innovation. And so Le Prince originally gets kind of roped into this scheme his brother-in-law has to sell kind of decorative wallpaper stuff in, in the US. And so he visits New York and they go on a cross-country trip and Le Prince falls in love with the country and essentially tells his family, look, we're moving. This is so much more dynamic than England. New York's amazing. I'm renting a house, get on a boat, we're starting fresh. And he starts working on motion pictures really at this time. Uh, he and his wife start teaching deaf and mute children in a specialized school, and Le Prince has got access to a back room, and so he starts working on a first, on a first prototype at the time. And in no small way, this image of America as a dynamic kind of place was built around Edison, who was 
a huge deal in New York more than anywhere else and whose name was on utilities and whose workers were out and about all the time and he was in the paper all the time and the Scientific American was basically his, you know, kind of family round robin. And he was, you know, proof on a greater scale than anyone in England or in France or in Europe that you could, on your wits and on your powers of invention, become extremely, extremely rich. And so over the course of the years, Le Prince, you know, develops this prototype, like many inventors of that time, he considers, you know, do I take this to Thomas Edison? Do I see if Thomas Edison can help me finish this? Because, you know, as you were saying, one of the great challenges was not just inventing the thing, but in finding a way to sell the thing. And you had to time that kind of right, because once you got a patent, you know, nominally, Technically, the patent gave you protection and gave you a monopoly on this invention and said, you have invented this, no one else can make it and make money from it. But at the same time, a patent also meant your plans for the invention and your blueprints for the invention and your claim to the invention were public. They were published. And so anybody could look them up and try and find a way to rip you off. So you had a very short window where you would be given a monopoly and legal protection, but you had to be ready to ramp up and produce and release so somebody else couldn't kind of nip you to the bud by stealing your now public idea. And, you know, the way most people did it at the time was to do what Edison himself had done, which was really to invent something and then sell it on, in, in Edison's case, to Western Union first. So you can invent and somebody else could pay you and they would deal with the production and the infrastructure and all of that. And so Le Prince considered going the Edison way. You know, Edison is the face of invention. A lot of people considered just bringing stuff to him and saying, hey, can we team up? Eventually, he, Louis decided not to do that and explored other avenues, I think, for partnering with other people, but became very quickly disillusioned with the business side of things. And he wasn't a very good businessman at all. But he became, while in New York, very quickly paranoid that if all I'm bringing to someone is a prototype and a patent, then the person with the money and the person with the logistics can squeeze me out very quickly and can steal my idea. And so he decides at some point in the late 1880s, he decides, you know what? Here's what I'm gonna actually do. I'm going, the machine's almost done which again was over-optimistic. It wasn't that close. The machine's almost done. I'm going to go back to England on my own, leaving my family behind. It's not going to take very long. Again, over-optimistic. And you know, in England, I'm a bit safer from the sharks over here in America where, where everything is still a bit like the Wild West. And I've got my father-in-law's plant and factory and resources. So I can go to England. I can uh, uh, fulfill this prototype's potential, and then I can start production of it in England, where I'm a little protected. But I'll come back, and we'll have a premiere here in the U.S., and we'll release it in New York, and you know, only do that once I've got patents in like nine different countries, and I've got kind of a production line ready to go. And so Le Prince alone, eventually Adolf joins him for a little while, but Le Prince sails back to England, gets to work in England, finishes his uh, a camera and projector and all this in England, which is why those first films were taken in Leeds and not in New York. But he leaves his wife and kids behind in New York because he thinks, I'll be back soon. No point uprooting everybody again. And yet it takes him three years in England to get to where he feels like he's done. 
um, three years of weird limbo where, you know, he's living away from his family, his family are pumping all the money they can make into his stuff. And he's sending whatever money he can back when he has to. And every six months, seemingly he's writing back saying, I'm nearly done. I'll be right back. And then a week later he writes back going, actually, I'm not nearly done. The thing I came up with now doesn't work. But eventually he takes these films in England. He gets all his patents. He tells his workmen, pack up the camera, pack up the projector. I'm good to go back to America as soon as I sort out my affairs. And he tells his wife, who's still in New York, find me a venue, you know, find me a place where we can show these films for the first time. And this, in perfect kind of cinematic drama fashion, is, is the juncture at which he disappears. Right, right. So while he is working back in England, he's still trying to get his patent accepted in the U.S. And it's a difficult, drawn-out process. It, it keeps getting rejected. And to make matters even more complicated, one of the people Le Prince went to for help originally, someone he had confided in, that that man eventually went to work for Edison. Do you think that during this time when Le Prince is in England that Edison is aware of what Le Prince is doing and is trying to uh, beat him to the punch? There's no evidence that Edison did, but Edison did pay attention to everything. And he had a gigantic library where people would get in every copy of the Scientific American and they would trawl it through for patent ideas and letters and granted patents and 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 Edison had a habit of filing these things called caveats, which are kind of like calling shotgun on stuff you hadn't invented yet, um, which was bizarre and eventually discontinued. But he would do this where he would sit down, go through all this stuff that other people were working on, and then he would use the might of his JP Morgan funded lawyers to file all these caveats to basically go... I haven't invented motion pictures and I haven't even started, but I'm thinking about it. So if somebody else comes in with a patent, you got to warn me because it's actually mine. And he would do this for a bunch of different stuff. And as you say, very small world in New York. So one of the lawyers that Le Prince worked with, uh, intellectual property lawyers called Clarence Seward, then became one of Edison's main lawyers. And, and you know, then you're trusting the, the, the guy who looks after your legal affairs not to screw you over for more money. Um, and there's no evidence that Clarence Seward screwed Le Prince over, but he was embroiled in multiple kind of corruption scandals later on in different capacities. So it's a kind of, you know, judge it as you will. Um, and getting the patent, yeah, as you say, w was a, a weird kind of catch-22 nightmare because Le Prince would, you know, file something saying, and I'm simplifying here, but he would file a patent application saying, I've invented a camera that takes all these pictures from one lens in quick succession so I can project them back and recreate movement. And then he would get a letter back going, uh, well, that sounds like two inventions, a camera and a projector. So you need to file this separately, one for the camera, one for the projector. So, okay, he'd file both separately and then he'd get letters back going, well, somebody else a long time ago filed for a camera that took a lot of pictures and somebody else has magic lanterns that project stuff. So this isn't new. And you'd have to go, no, but mine takes all the pictures from one point of view. So it's different because no one else has managed to take all these pictures through one lens before. And you get a letter back going, ah, well, someone has used one lens for cameras before. 
And he would go, no, no, but they've used one lens for one picture at a time. I'm doing one lens for several pictures together. And then you get an answer back going, okay, well, that doesn't belong in this department. It belongs in this other department. And then the projector would be rejected because they would say, well, there's nothing new about projecting images quickly. And Le Prince would go, no, but what matters is they project images quickly that have taken from that exact same point of view to make it look like real motion, which hasn't been done before. And so, you know, as we were talking about before, this idea that technology was moving so quickly that even like patent offices couldn't really keep up with stuff that was genuinely new because there was such a big volume of people inventing stuff or claiming they were inventing stuff, such a huge volume of applications. You know, there was an office kind of like on a whole city block in Washington where examiners had to go through applications and and decide if something was new or not. And in many cases, even as engineers themselves, they didn't necessarily understand what they were being shown. And because they were dealing in legalities, stuff had to go into a box. So if they went, is this photography or is this exhibition? And Le Prince went, well, it's both. One doesn't make sense without the other. There's no box on the form for both. So you'd have to go up in person and kind of explain, look, this is how this works. And so that was a whole process, which again, that's the whole process for everybody normal. The whole process for Thomas Edison was different. You were Thomas Edison and your lawyers filed something and you were generally given it. And sometimes it was even backdated to suit you. And so there's this whole intrigue of Le Prince, not just trying to get this invention to work, but getting extremely anxious and extremely paranoid about will my le- will my patents be specific? Will my patents be granted in time? Will they cover me? Will I be ready when they're granted? You know, you have this whole you have these back back and forth in correspondence where you know he's essentially told if you take out the mention that you're using one lens for these cameras, then we'll grant you the patent. And he's very aware that the mention of one lens is extremely important. That's what makes the difference between what he was doing and what other people were doing, that these images have to be taken from one singular point of view, or you cannot replay them consistently. But he's also tempted by, do I just agree to this? So I have a patent, even though it's kind of bastardized, and I figure out later. And it turns out he either didn't make a decision or decided against it, but his patent lawyers decided to remove the mention of one lens so they could get a patent. Because as a lawyer, that's success. I've filed an application, you've had it granted. And later on in court, that would become a gigantic point of contention of, you know, yes, he did mention one lens over and over again, but it's not in a granted patent, so it doesn't count kind of thing. And so there's machinations and strategizing on all these different levels just to establish that you've done the thing you've done so you can benefit from having done that thing. Absolutely, yeah. So part of the problem for the family, as you've already talked a bit about, is financial. Le Prince has gone overseas. His work is devoted to his invention, not to generating any family income. But there is a silver lining in in some bad news. He and his brother have come into some money. Their parents are both now deceased. Can you explain their their family's financial situation, and how it affects Louis's work. Yeah, so there's a bit of a monkey's paw situation that comes up in a sense that 
Le Prince is in England. He's hired these two guys to work with him, uh, a mechanic and an engineer, uh, sorry, and a woodcarver, to help him build this camera. And he's paying them weekly. And he's you know, making his bills every week, according to these guys, never late paying them. But he's got to pay for, for them and for the workshop and for the equipment and for the power and, and you know, kind of disposable chemical equipment for all this stuff. And he's not really working at this time. And his wife is a teacher and kind of part-time magazine writer in New York. But they've got quite a big family to look after. Um, they've got some financial assistance from uh, uh, Le Prince's in-laws. We're kind of half retired, half bankrupt, still have a fair amount of, of personal money then, but it's draining. And so what he needs more than anything around 1887, 1888 is funding. He needs kind of a lump sum of money so he can pay um, for all these expenses, kind of seed money. Um, and lo and behold, what happens is Le Prince's mother, his widowed mother, who is quite well off and owned a building in central Paris, gets ill and dies around this exact same time. And she leaves the building to Louis and his brother, Albert, um, 50-50. And so Le Prince, who's already in England, goes over to Paris and work something out with his brother where he tells him, look, Albert, I, I, you know, you would like to rent this building out. You like the asset. I don't need the asset. I need cash. Can I sell you my half of the inheritance? And, you know, Albert essentially tells him that sounds great, but I obviously don't have this, this sum, which I think adds up to something like almost half a million dollars or something today to pay you out. But as I make money, as the building makes money over the years, I'll pay you that over the next five years, essentially. Which works out for everybody because Louis, you know, Albert gets the building, he gets this thing that can make income for him. Louis, who does not need the building, has this kind of steady income coming in for five years. And this, by all accounts, is the only way he can pay to keep on working on the movie thing. Because there are times in the correspondence where, you know, he's telling his wife, I don't have cash at hand at the moment. I want to send you money, but I don't have it. There are times it seems where he's paying his workmen before he can pay the bills on the electricity or the material or the rent because there are kind of follow-up receipts and invoices from suppliers saying, you know, this is overdue. Can you pay us? And so that's been made up by some people since that, oh, the prince must have been in terrible debt and going bankrupt and failing. And he owed money to someone um, in England as well, who was taking him to court over that money, and he had a judgment to pay, but it wasn't a very big judgment. It was kind of like a small mortgage every month. But what it seems like to me, having dug through it in great detail, was he was in that kind of situation where he had cash flow issues, to kind of put it simply. So he'd be able to pay the workmen, but some weeks he wouldn't be able to pay the supplier, and he'd have to pay the supplier late. Um, he'd be able to send money home, but sometimes not as much as other weeks, and some weeks he'd have to skip it. But he was able to keep going. He was able to pay. You know, he was never evicted from a workshop for not paying his bills. The guys who worked for him testified under oath that they were never paid, you know, late and that they got their little pay packets every week. And he kept building cameras and no bailiffs turned up at the door. But really, it was this inheritance that made all of that possible because otherwise he, he would have had to give up much sooner, I imagine. Because it was really, really expensive work. You were paying workmen and you were paying, as I said, for, for all these different expenses. And you're racing people like Thomas Edison, who were funded by JP Morgan, 
or people like Julien Marais, who was a, a scientist in France working on moving images, who was funded by the French government. And so Le Prince was very much, you know, the underdog type in this situation. And by the way, it's the recent invention of, of celluloid, right, that helps Le Prince get over that final hurdle, uh, allows him to dramatically improve his invention. Yeah, which is another kind of double-sided monkey's paw thing in a sense that by 87, 88, so a few months to a year before he takes Round Hay Garden scene and these other two films, Le Prince has basically figured out how the camera and projector should work. Like the machines are there, the lens is there, he knows all the principles for how it works, but he just needs something, some kind of base, some kind of strip that he can run through the camera that won't break like the glass plates and won't rip and catch fire like the little paper rolls that he's been using that some photographers are using at the time. And so he's already worked out, you know, I need something flexible, like a roll of something that I can just run past the camera, but it needs to be strong enough that it's not going to break or catch fire, but also flexible enough that I can fit it in this small camera and I don't need to have suitcases full of it like I did with the glass plates. And so he's kind of stuck until somebody else comes up with it because he was an amateur chemist and his son was studying to be a chemist, but they couldn't figure out what kind of uh, emulsion, which is basically a, a, a kind of chemical mixture they could put on the paper to make it strong and sensitive to light and still flexible. And it was very rudimentary stuff. You know, people at the time would just like coat paper or glass in like egg whites and then, you know, put an activator in there and that would capture the image. So they were figuring it out as they could go. And then one day, there's kind of two uh, uh, companies in the US very close to one another, one called John Carbutts in Philadelphia, and then obviously George Eastman's Kodak up in New York, who, who come out with celluloid film. And celluloid is one of those weird things that it had been around for years, but no one had any idea what to do with it. You know, they would use it to make fake teeth and billiard balls and starched collars and all this stuff that, you know, the market would go, okay, I guess that's a bit cheaper than the real thing, but it's also kind of synthetic and fake and, and you know, plastic's not very sexy. I don't know what to do with this. Until Hannibal Goodwin, who's the guy who, who sold this patent to George Eastman, and John Carbutt, who were or photography companies, figured out, oh, wait, the celluloid thing if we actually put that, if we make a celluloid base for photo cameras, then we have an improvement on the paper film because photographers can just put it in their cameras. It takes much less room than glass plates. It's not going to rip or, or it's not as fragile as the paper. And it's plastic. We can just make it in gigantic sheets and factories. We don't have to go collect it from anywhere. We can just industrially develop it, price it as we want. And we have an improvement on the paper film that's easier to make. And Le Prince, once he reads that in, in one of his trade papers, he starts going all over London trying to find this thing because suddenly he's got the thing that he's almost been just like waiting in limbo for, perfectly designed for him. And it's kind of accidental because Eastman and Carbot had no idea that anybody was trying to take you know, 24 frames per second or 15 frames per second. But in inventing this slight improvement on regular paper photo film, they'd invented the kind of film that was perfect for what Le Prince and other motion picture pioneers needed. Now, the flip side part of that is it was so well suited to taking moving images that once everybody else caught wind of it, they were able to catch up to Le Prince very, very quickly 
because they were able to reverse engineer the camera and the projector from the ideal film base, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure does. So back to Le Prince and his preparations to return to the United States. So he decides to stop and visit his brother first before making his overseas journey. And his goal in meeting with his brother, right, is, is to iron out some of the details regarding his share of the inheritance. Yeah, so from the record that we have, you know, the prince makes all his plans to go back to America, but he has to go to France. I think partly emotionally, you know, kind of personally to say goodbye to his brother and his niece and nephews before he moves halfway across the world, he thinks forever. And partly to settle this question of the inheritance that Albert still owed him at least a portion of what he owed him. And he had until 1892 to pay it. So this is now September 1890. So there's a couple of years left on the term. And we don't know for sure necessarily what Louis Louis's angle speaking to Albert was, but it's almost certainly either, you know, look, I'm moving to America and we're going to have to figure out a way for you to send me this money because it's a completely different thing than just, you know, sending a, a check or a, or a note of credit to England or to Paris for me to put into a French account. Or it's Le Prince saying, look, this thing I've been working on for years, I'm ready to go. My wife has rented a villa. I got to start building the machines. I need the money sooner than in two years. What can you do for me? Or some combination of the two. And so Louis stays in Dijon, which is a town in the south of France where his brother lives uh, for a long weekend. And they interact a little bit. And they obviously talk about this money stuff. And, and uh, Louis' niece, Albert's daughter, says in a letter that, you know, they have some, you know, tense conversations about this subject. But eventually, Albert and his family see Louis back um, on the train to Paris, where um, he was going to be met by some friends from England, travel back to England with those friends. And then, you know, it's kind of a roundabout way, but he would take the train from Dijon to Paris, meet those friends, go from there to the channel, cross the channel on a boat, and then take the train from London to Leeds and then take a train or a coach from Leeds to Liverpool and then sail from Liverpool to New York. And what happens is um, the last record of anybody seeing Le Prince that we have is from a letter written by Albert's daughter, so Louis' um, niece, saying, we saw him off on the train, he missed the morning train, but we put him on the afternoon train and off he went. And what happens is Le Prince's French family, having put him on the train, seemingly assume, well, that's it. He's off. Le Prince's friends in Paris don't see him coming off the train. It's unclear whether they waited for the first train he had missed or the second train he was on or both, but they don't see him arriving. And so they think he must have stayed back in France a little bit longer. We'll carry on up to England um, without him and meet him there. Um, and I've had questions about this, but this was extremely common at the time when you know telephones were still really new. If someone changed a plan and had to, you know, wire you or send you a letter, they wouldn't be able to let you know right away. And so you you wouldn't freak out the way you would now that someone's not at the pub and they're not answering your calls. It's just, okay, well, I guess this plan's changed. We'll see them later. So they go on to England and they they stay in England, kind of thinking Louis back in uh, France. And meanwhile, the prince's wife and kids are in New York thinking... He's on his way. He's going to be on the boat. 
any minute. And so in this kind of massive confusion, a few weeks go by until Lizzie, Louis's wife, writes back to England saying, you know, Louis usually answers my letters every week. And I know he's busy, but it's been a few weeks now and I've had no response. And, and I would imagine he'd at least tell me I'm boarding this and that boat and I'm on the way and I haven't heard anything. So I should check in that everything is going all right. And essentially, you know, the friends in England go, oh, well, I think he's actually stayed in France. I thought he would have let you know. I'll check in with the guys in France. And so they check in with the guys in France who basically say, I thought he was with you. He left us weeks ago as scheduled. And so it's weeks after he actually gets on the train when everybody realizes, oh, we don't, we have no idea where he is. And it's already been, you know, three weeks, four weeks, and no one has heard of him. Right. And the camera and, and the projector are still locked away, right? The projector and camera are still in the workshop in Leeds. And at some point after they realize Louis disappeared, then one of his trusted friends kind of oversees clearing the workshop, basically, because uh, uh, Louis's wife, soon to be widow, can't pay the bills on it. So this friend goes in and works out, okay, we can throw this stuff out, we can throw this stuff out, we can keep this, we can store this. But at this point, when, he's, when Louis is on the train or disappeared and no one knows about it, all that stuff is still in special cases, in the workshop, in Leeds, waiting for Louis to pick them up and take them to America with him. And we will be right back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. And we have returned. 
So enough time has, has gone by, right, to make it really difficult for police to properly investigate his disappearance, uh, t- to go back and track down train passengers who might have seen Le Prince uh, weeks earlier. That's a pretty monumental task. It's really hard. And it's also to go back to this thing I was talking about that, you know, Sherlock Holmes was still a year or two into the future. The police didn't think of looking for people in that way. And so a lot of the reaction Lizzie gets when she starts making inquiries is literally just policemen going, oh, I'm sorry, madam, your husband disappeared. Well, I'm sure he's very happy with his mistress and just doesn't want to talk to you. You know, there's no uh, kind of investigative instinct of this is a missing person's case. We've got to look for him. We'll collect clues. There's, you know, there's one meeting Lizzie has with the NYPD where she's really told, well, put his, you know, bring me a picture. We'll put him in the rogues gallery, you know, essentially saying we want to find this man for desertion of his family. And that's how we'll find him. You know, there weren't, there was no process of like looking for clues or assembling evidence. It was, you turn up somewhere, you ask witnesses, you club a couple people, you put their picture up in the rogues gallery, see what happens. And so she didn't do that. Lizzie, obviously, she thought it was kind of undignified and insulting and shameful. But, you know, they tried. The record, you know, Lizzie opened that that file and she hired a private detective or was a retired cop who did his best to look for Le Prince on the New York side. And Louis's brother said he was putting ads in the newspapers in France and had filed a report to the police in Dijon and in Paris to keep an, an eye out for Louis and... There was, and Lizzie mentions in her memoir that, you know, a case was opened with Scotland Yard in England in case he turned up. But, you know, it's a cold case from the start. It's, it's, guy gets on train, disappears. There's no body, there's no evidence, there's no report of any kerfuffle or incident on the train. And the world was getting big. Like the, before, 10 years before this, you know, someone disappeared in Dijon, you could be pretty sure they were near Dijon somewhere. And so you could kind of narrow it down. But in this instance, he could be in Dijon, he could be in Paris, he could be anywhere in between. He could have made it to Paris and carried on to England. He could have fallen off the ferry in the channel. He could have, if he was going bankrupt and was ashamed, he could have lied to his family and actually got on the train in Dijon, but then got on another train in a different direction and gone to live in Morocco for all anybody knew. And so it had the kind of openness of our modern world where someone could go to a far-flung locale, it could disappear, something could happen to them on an empty road 100 kilometers from where they were last seen. But it didn't have all the stuff that makes our world feel smaller. You know, it's not like you could track his credit card or mobile phone pings or, you know, tap into security cameras to see if he turned up. It, it was like someone stepped into the wide unknown world and then vanished. And it was like finding a needle in a haystack three weeks after you lost the needle and it was kind of doomed from the start. Yeah. So Lewis had this premiere that he was very excited about in the U S yeah. And, and the idea that he would run off secretly with a mistress at this very important moment in his life, his life's work about to come to, fruition potentially i mean it seems pretty hard to swallow mm. and the same goes for the, the the belief by some that he committed suicide it, it just doesn't make sense right yeah it didn't seem to fit him and and you know you got to come with the caveat of well you know what 
you know, what kind of personality fits suicide, to like put it really bluntly. And that makes, you know, that idea sound ludicrous. You'd be able to predict. But all the kind of stuff that people usually look at to determine whether someone is at risk of dying by suicide, Le Prince didn't really take any of those boxes. He'd made plans for the future. You know, there was, there was a, you know, wife and kids and stuff he was leaving behind that he had made no indication of feeling burdened by. He hadn't previously tried to take his life or shown to be particularly um, depressive or self-harming. He had survived as a, as a war veteran in a way to suggest that he had some degree, not just of kind of mental resilience, but kind of cultural rejection of the concept of, of dying by suicide. And so there's a degree of assumption because you're not in someone's head. But all the stuff they usually would look at and go, this person was in a mindset to commit suicide. None of those were present for Le Prince. You know, the, the, the people who saw him in France, family and friends before he got on the train, all reported that he seemed in good spirits and happy and relaxed and all this stuff. And so as you kind of dig through it, at least for me, the two main or most likely things you end up with is someone got rid of him for his invention or someone got rid of him you know by pure kind of bad luck chance he was mugged he was attacked he got into an argument he got caught up in something and so those were the two things i kind of followed most closely because the other theories you could discount kind of easily like is it possible that he you know joined the foreign legion and spent the next 30 years in africa fighting i guess it's possible there's also literally no evidence pointing towards it or making it likely or, or whatever other than anything's possible, I guess. And so again, coming full circle, I kind of took the Holmesian kind of approach of, you know, once you eliminate kind of everything that's improbable, then whatever you're left with is probably where you should be looking. And very quickly that becomes someone got rid of him for reasons to do with motion pictures or someone kind of killed him or got rid of him for reasons not connected with motion pictures, but something happened to him, you know, out of his own agency. And one of the possibilities might've been his brother. Yeah. His brother would have benefited from Louis dying. It, w it would have eased some of his financial pressure. For sure. And if you, you know, I kind of tried to look at it like, okay, if I'm a policeman, uh, uh, investigating this, what am I looking at? Okay, so in, in a lot of cases like this, the culprit is generally someone who is close to you, a family member or something. So can't be Lizzie, she's across the ocean, could be Louis's brother, could be Louis's brother-in-law, who's also in Europe at the time, and very similar kind of profiles. Like Albert, you know, had some financial difficulties, he owed Louis money, uh, Jack Whitley, who was Louis's brother-in-law, had some financial difficulties, had previously tried to get Louis to to kind of sort of partner up with him in different schemes and, and premiere the motion pictures with him. And so they become kind of very valuable, uh, uh, valid suspects very quickly. And then there is the kind of faceless suspect, this idea that Le Prince was mugged in Paris, which happened a lot at the time. He comes off the night train, it's dark, he's got to cross the city to get to the place where he usually stays in Paris, and he just gets mugged and dumped into the Seine, which happened to people at the time, or something similar happening on the train. And then there was the family suspect, who was Thomas Edison, 
because Le Prince disappears, and within weeks, the front page of the newspapers in New York are all about Thomas Edison's newest wonder, this camera that can capture and replay life, and it looks and is described to be so alike what Le Prince was working on that Lizzie has friends cable her a pop around the house going, I didn't know Louis was working with Thomas Edison. That's lovely. Or going, how come Edison is announcing the thing Louis was working on? And so Lizzie becomes very quickly convinced, well, Thomas Edison had something to do with this. Because what is the likelihood that Thomas Edison, notorious thief, even back then, would announce the thing that Louis was working on right after Louis suddenly disappears for no reason? And so, you know, if you were playing a game of Clue, that's kind of... That's kind of like your little cards. It's, you know, the brother in Dijon with the inheritance, the brother-in-law in England with the financial trouble, Thomas Edison in New York with the patent theft, or the faceless Parisian mugger w- with, you know, a club in the Seine. And and that's kind of your, your prime suspect. And the fact that he, he, he disappeared, nobody recovered, that posed problems for his family. I mean, he, he couldn't be declared dead. He was just gone. Exactly. So it's one of the great kind of really intriguing things about the disappearance in the first place, right? Because you go, for instance, the conversation we're having earlier, oh, well, he probably didn't die by suicide because who dies by suicide in a way that they've planned out that their body should never be found? Like that seems really, really unlikely. It also makes it complicated to to resolve where and how anything happened to him because there's no body. And then, as you say, legally... What it meant is that Le Prince was not dead. He was a missing person. And in the law at the time, you couldn't declare someone dead until a body had been found or seven years had elapsed from their disappearance, whichever came first. And in that time period, you could not touch any of their property. Technically, legally, you couldn't wear their clothes, you couldn't sell or rent out their house, and you couldn't make use of their intellectual property. And so Lizzie and Louis' kids in New York find themselves in a situation where the equipment is in England and they don't really have authority to ship it abroad or bring it to New York. The patents are granted and they're in Louis' name, but they have no legal capacity to take ownership of them, to act on them, to license them out, to build the cameras. As far as the law sees it, Le Prince could turn up at any time and say, I hate my wife. I didn't want her to build my machine. That's why I disappeared. And so she's not allowed to do anything with them. And so for this period of seven years, because a body is never found, for this period of seven years, Lizzie and the kids have to just sit on this invention that was pretty much done and not do anything with it. But in the meantime, during that period of seven years, first comes Thomas Edison with his kinetoscope and kinetograph, who starts opening parlors all over Manhattan and makes a fortune. And then newspapers are everywhere saying, Edison's done it again. This is the most amazing thing he's ever done, probably. And they know in their minds, this is Louis' credit and Louis' money, but they can't do anything about it. And then the Lumiere brothers come along with the cinematograph and they make even more money. And everybody goes, this is an improvement even on the kinetoscope. And instead of little kind of peep show parlors, which is what Edison had, now there's you know movie houses opening and screening rooms and people are watching stuff together and queuing out the block. But the Le Princes still can't do anything about it because the law has tied their hands. Until, again, another double-edged situation, seven years after Le Prince um, has disappeared, when they've all but given up, 
a representative of one of the film, the filmmaking companies in New York essentially finds the Le Princes and knocks on their door and says, Thomas Edison is suing everybody who's making movies. He wants to claim that he invented not just his camera, but the entire medium of motion pictures. And anybody who makes a film anywhere owes him a license fee or has to go out of business. And he's asserting this by saying that he is the first person ever to have patented a motion picture device. But we've gone through the patent office records. And it says a guy called Louis Le Prince actually came first. And could we have him testify on our behalf? And, you know, the Le Princes say, well, you know, he disappeared. And we can't afford to sue Thomas Edison. But we could have him officially declared dead. And then we could take control of his property. And we can testify um, as one of your witnesses on your behalf in a way that, you know, at least finally gives us our day in court with Thomas Edison, even if it's kind of in a roundabout way. And Louis's son, Adolf, yeah. is a part of all of this, right? He is, yeah. So uh, so Adolf had, you know, spent a bit of time in England with Louis. He was in that early motion picture playing the melodeon. He was a chemistry student. He kind of understood the machines better than anybody. And so what happens is while his mother goes down to the mayor's office and swears that Le Prince has disappeared and has disappeared for seven years and this is what his property is and so on, does all the paperwork, Adolf sails back to England and goes around everybody who knew Le Prince, worked with Le Prince, had seen the films projected, had been in the room when Louis was working on them. He collects all this sworn testimony. You know, they're like, he, he has people come by embassies and notaries offices and has, has them, you know, swear under oath that their statements are true and stamped by notaries. And he gathers the camera and the projector and bits of film. And he sells all this back to America. And it's decided he will be the one to testify because he's the one who was there and he's the one who knows the dates and he's the one who knows how everything worked. And so in, you know, 1898 in kind of pretrial hearings, um, he finds himself caught in this weird situation, right? Where there's, there's Edison's kind of corporation on one side and this company called the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, which is another kind of corporation facing each other, right? So Edison wanted the Mutoscope and Biograph out of business for infringing on his, as he saw it, intellectual property. Mutoscope and Biograph wanted to stay in business. And the way they thought they could do that was to prove that Edison's argument he was the inventor of motion pictures wasn't true because Le Prince had invented motion pictures first. But as Adolf would find out, the Mutoscope and Biograph didn't want to make that case too strongly because they would come very close to saying, well, actually, Louis Le Prince invented motion pictures, so I should owe his family money. So what they wanted to do was to use Adolf to make the case that Edison couldn't have been the first, but not go so far as make a case that Louis had been the first. So they kind of needed Adolf to, to they kind of needed to steer him to a testimony that would show, in a sense, that Le Prince had had invented the medium but not invented machines that meant they owed him money either whereas adolf went in i think quite naively thinking we all agree that if we prove my dad invented the whole thing this is over um and so he, he, he found himself caught as he says it on the record kind of caught between the devil and the deep blue sea 
manipulated by both sides, really. And the Le Prince family suffers tremendously. It really tears them apart. Yeah, it makes things worse. You know, Adolf gets chewed up, spat out. You know, he finds himself with like Edison's lawyers bringing up their own experts to call him a liar and to say that the camera couldn't have worked anyway. And even if it looked like it could have worked, there's nothing to prove. Adolf didn't just build the camera last week, claimed it was old and, you know, kind of smearing his dad's legacy and like, would this person really have disappeared if they invented the movies? And at the same time, the lawyers that he thinks are defending him are really defending another corporation. So they put him in a situation where, you know, they want him to prove that his father had a patent, but not that the films worked. And so they undermine him in the process. And so what happens in the first place is Thomas Edison is vindicated by the courts. And the courts say, yes, Thomas Edison, by inventing the first commercially available motion picture device, has invented the whole medium. And so everybody owes him money. And you can sort of read the decision and parse it out, and it's ridiculous. It's, it's one of those instances that happened a lot at a time where you can see that the judge had no idea what he was dealing in technically and was kind of overawed by Edison and was essentially going on the fact of, well, the first kinetoscope parlor was Edison's, so that's that. And that hits Adolf really, really hard. You gather the sense from, from the paperwork and what exists that he really felt like he had, you know, his shot at the villain and missed, really. And so shortly after the verdict is handed down, he goes to Fire Island where the family had a little cabin. He says he's going to go hunting. And while he's out hunting, he, you know, puts the rifle up by his chin and blows his brains out, which completely rips the family apart, right? Because very soon after that, an appeal goes on, and in the appeal, Thomas Edison is found to be wrong. And so months after Adolf kind of kills himself out of guilt, the judgment is reversed. And it's going to be reversed and again and again and again and again. But you know, the, the guilt he had over messing up, as he saw it at the trial, might have been kind of mitigated just months later. But he commits suicide, and his brother, who was around the house at the time, or one of his brothers, Fernand Leon, gets really, really affected by this. And so a few years later, he's found ranting on the same beach, swinging the same gun that Adolf had used, talking about ghosts haunting the beach. And he's sent to a mental institution that he never leaves for the rest of his life, as far as we can tell. And eventually, Edison is found to have invented motion pictures in a kind of Supreme Court decision that is so corrupt historians write about it now because essentially what Edison did was he got to the point where all his appeals had been rejected. His own patent had been rejected. And so what he did is he filed a completely new patent, but essentially just told the patent office, by the way, can you just backdate this to before Le Prince is for me, please? Thank you very much. I'm Thomas Edison. And that sounds insane, but that's exactly what the patent office did. They just stamped the date, you know, kind of, 10 years into the past on it for Edison. And then he took that brand new backdated patent to court and went, looky loo, this says I had the first one. Even before this Le Prince guy, the judges said, well, I, that's the legal standard. It's got the, the, the earliest date on it. So Thomas Edison invented the pictures, I guess. And that's how we end up, you know, kind of having Hollywood because all the people in New York that Thomas Edison was then trying to sue out of business figured, let's just move as far away from this guy as possible 
where's cheap, sunny, and no one cares about copyright law, California, let's go there. But as this all drags out, Lizzie LePrince sees no money whatsoever. They have to like sell the house and move to a smaller place and move to a smaller place and move to a smaller place. And Adolf has killed himself. And the, the, the other of the three sons is in a mental institution now, possibly forever, ranting and raving about ghosts. And the whole family, by trying to take you know one last stand to, to retain Louis' legacy, has completely come apart at the seams. Yeah, how, how tragic. So here's a question. So the prince left his camera and projector behind. Why didn't he take them with him? You'd think that he'd want to protect them with his life. And as long as we're on the subject of his devices and this possibility of murder, if someone went to such extreme, let's say Edison, to put a hit out on the prince, why wouldn't they try to steal or destroy the camera and the projector? Just wondering what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's all these moving parts about it, right? So the first part of the question, I'm almost certain the idea for Le Prince was, you know, he wanted to travel to France light. He did value the camera and the projector, and they were pretty big devices, so he didn't want to have to carry them around and keep them safe the whole week or two or whatever he was in France. So he tells his his two workers, you know, lock it up in their cases, lock it up in the workshop, no one really knows what's going on here at the workshop because I've been paranoid and secretive about it anyway. And William Mason, who was his woodworker, lived and worked right next door in the family shop. So almost certainly the idea was lock it up in the cases, lock up the workshop, you live next door, keep an eye on it. I'm going to France to sort this stuff out and I'll come back this way. I'll come back to Leeds. I'll pick up the equipment, the camera and the projector. Um, and I will take those to Liverpool and then on the boat to New York when I go. And so that's how the camera and the projector end up stranded in Leeds under lock and key waiting for Le Prince when Le Prince is not returning. The second part of that is the part that becomes really sticky when you start looking at the suspects that might have killed Le Prince for, um, for his invention whether it's Edison or whether it's his brother-in-law or whether it's someone just in Leeds who would call wind of what he was doing and thought they would steal the invention is, you know, why would you need to kill him? Why would you need to kill him and make the body disappear? Why would you not, as you say, either destroy the camera and projector or steal the camera and projector and claim they're yours? Um, even if you did, Le Prince still had the patents. So what, Good is it to have a machine that would have been stamped with the prince's name and clearly looked like something in his patent, and so it's clearly his. And so if you're trying to make the argument that it was someone, you know, kind of engaging in industrial espionage or theft, then you gotta answer those questions. And I've seen some people, you know, make the argument that well, there was probably someone trying to steal the prince's invention, but they hadn't really thought it through, and so they figured. I've got to get rid of him and then his cameras will be there for the taking and I will go pick up the equipment and he won't be able to fight me because he'll be dead and his property will be frozen and I can claim it as mine. And again, like some of the other theories, that's possible. Don't know how to make it make sense really, or but it's possible. Um, the other possibility is what Lizzie Le Prince essentially came to believe in the end, 
which was that Edison had had Le Prince eliminated and he didn't need to worry about the cameras. Didn't need to worry about the projector. He had his own lab. He could build copies. He could build you know, his own versions of them. And once Louis, who was the only one who knew the machines well enough, was gone and had disappeared and the property was frozen for seven years, then Edison would be able to you know, stick his flag into the medium. And by the time anybody could do anything about it, it wouldn't matter you know, who had the camera in their possession or not. Um, history would have already been written. Um, which, whether Lizzie was right or wrong, is kind of essentially how things played out. Right, right. So in recent years, there, there has been discussion about a photograph found of an unidentified drowning victim in Paris. And some believe it might be Louis Le Prince. Can you describe the photo and tell us your take on it? Of course. Uh, the photograph, um, which was dug up relatively recently in the last decade or so, I think, is of a man who was found drowned in the Seine. Um, it's kind of a, a close-up, medium close-up, kind of top of the head to, um, to the chest picture on the slab, which they used to take to put um, in the morgue records in case anybody came looking um, for a missing relative. And it's a fascinating picture because the man was pulled out of the river pretty pretty shortly after Louis Le Prince disappeared. And he looks vaguely like Le Prince. I've, I've taken that picture around to people saying, do you think this looks like this other guy? And showed him a picture of Louis Le Prince. And, you know, half of, of the people I ask say, oh yeah, that's definitely him. Half of the people I ask say it's definitely not him. But it's kind of a, a fascinating conundrum that I go into a bit in the book because that, 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 that man, that corpse was pulled out of the river wearing clothes um, with monograms on them. They were not Louis Le Prince's. Um, he has facial hair like Le Prince, but in a completely different style from Louis Le Prince's. Um, if he was Le Prince, who was you know over six foot tall, Delmore certainly would have noted that height in the notes that came with the photograph describing the man, and that is not noted. Um, you know, the Le Prince family claimed to have looked through the morgue records to have found him and did not either recognize this person as Louis or did not come across him. But it's a fascinating theory for what might have happened to him, which is that he, you know, got off the train in Paris and, and, and was mugged and assaulted in Paris. Um, and then either this body or another body pulled out of the river and kept at the morgue for a while. And then eventually, when it was unclaimed, um, being buried in a pauper's grave might have been him. Well, well this has been so fascinating. So I do want to tell listeners, you have a website. It's, it's paulfisherauthor.com. All kinds of information about you, your, your books, and not only this one, but the one mentioned earlier, a Kim Jong-il production. And if you don't mind, I would love it if you could summarize that book, a Kim Jong-il production for us. It's such a, a wild story. Sure, yeah. So it's very similar in the sense that it's kind of film, cultural history mixed with true crime. But it's the true story of a South Korean filmmaker called Shin Sang-ok. And his wife was an extremely famous actress called Che Eun-hee. Um, and Shin and Che, in 1978, were kidnapped from South Korea by North Korean agents and were taken to Pyongyang on the orders of a young guy who ran the Ministry of Propaganda uh, called Kim Jong-il 
who was a gigantic film buff and who wasn't yet the, the Kim Jong-il of Team America and stuff, but who was kind of young and cool and fancied himself a film producer. And his dad ran North Korea at the time, and it was already a repressive dictatorship. And Kim Jong-il had Shin and Shae kidnapped because he wanted them to make films for him because he'd seen how Japan had restored itself after World War II uh, by using films as a kind of cultural export. And he wanted the same thing and he loved films and he wanted to be taken seriously as a filmmaker. And he also wanted to use film to establish himself as kind of the most influential person in North Korea and the most likely successor to his dad. So he kept Shin and Shae imprisoned for eight years and forced them to make several films for him, including like a martial arts film and a Godzilla ripoff and all these crazy projects. And Shin and Shae made these films for Kim Jong-il while plotting a way to escape North Korea. Um, and so it's the story of that whole adventure. Ah, so, so interesting. Well, well, gosh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and for putting up with me going on and on and on about minute detail. <laughs> oh, not at all. Again, I have been speaking to Paul Fisher. He is the author of The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, a true tale of obsession, murder, and the movies. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Have a safe tomorrow. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 